Dotnet Rocks episode 837 with guest Richard Astbury. Recorded live Friday, January 4th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. We're here for the new year, and uh, I'm in uh, my studio in New London, Connecticut. Richard is at his uh, beautiful home in Vancouver, British Columbia. Comfortable and cozy, and what are we, five shows in of the 104 we'll do this year? Oh, my God. <laughs> and that's just this one. It's not even talking about tablet show. I know. And run as radio. And run as radio. And Hansel Minutes. We don't do that, but we produce it. Yep. And uh, it's it's nice. DNR TV once in a while. We'll get back on DNR TV, I promise. Uh, some cool stuff to do over there. Yeah. A lot of cool stuff. But before we can do any of that, it's better know, uh, better know, uh, well, better know stuff. All right. What stuff do we need to know today? Well, I found a really cool thing on the windowsazure.com site. Did you? It's a tutorial. If you go to tinyurl.com slash Azure multi-tier, .NET multi-tier application using storage tables, queues, and blobs. Wow. So you learn a lot of stuff. So it's a whole framework there. Yep. Nice. And it talks Good about one. all sorts of all sorts of things you learn uh uh, it just uh, exercises lots of Azure's features, so I highly recommend it. I and I don't. It's not just me that recommends it. Um, I found a lot of people talking about it out there. So. Right, and I see MVC four web role plus worker role. Oh yeah, blob storage. Nice, lots of different pieces. Configuring tracing, using send grid to send emails. It's pretty cool. Good stuff. You want to jump into Azure? That's a great place to start. Yeah, this could be your north wind. Could be. <laughs> Richard, who's talking to us? I uh, grabbed a comment off of show 819, and that is the one we did on the road trip with Oren Eni. Loved it. Which, if you recall, we talked quite extensively about uh, NoSQL and Raven and all that good stuff. Yeah. And this is from John Watt, who's a bit of a critic on this, and I don't have a problem with that because we can certainly uh, you know, go through this conversation. Sure. And here's what John says. So I'm going to nitpick about one thing, and even though this could be dangerous, it's going to be about something that Oren said. Several times, Oren says in the episode that the way a, quote, relational database does such and such and this and that. By relational database, Oren means SQL Server, Oracle, and the relational database management system products of major vendors on the market. Relational database should mean a database that implements the relational model. For example, if I have an order and that order has a set of order items, then most people believe that a, quote, relational database way is to store the order items in a separate table with a one-to-many relationship. In NoSQL, order items get stored together with the order, which provides uh, better performance in the most useful situation, which is ad hoc querying being exception. Uh, so then the line goes that NoSQL is faster than relational databases. I call this false dichotomy shenanigans. Okay. What's stopping us from storing order items as an attribute of our, on our order table in a relational model in the exact same way that NoSQL does it? Hmm. There's nothing in the model that says you can't do this. 
The reason is that existing relational database solutions do not make this easy. XML can be used as a type to store custom types, but who wants to serialize everything back and forth to XML when reading and writing to a database? Mm -hmm. This is absolutely true. There is an XML type in SQL Server, and you could be stuffing all the order items in there. Mm -hmm. And before someone yells, first normal form violation, I would suggest they take a look at Date on Databases, Chapter 8, what first normal form really means, a VAR card, and that's from uh, Chris Date or CJ Date. Uh, and to his point, a Varcar 255 is, after all, an array of cars. Ah! It is, right? It's just a one-dimensional array. Well, I thought he meant cars. No. Not chars. Not chars, but cars. Cars. Uh, Chris Date, former partner of Ted Codd, who really wrote the original paper on Dr. relational databases, and Cod. one of the pioneers in relational databases, has written more than a couple of books, and has spent a great deal of time explaining how objects could be implemented in relational databases. From a purely theoretical point of view, a relational database can do everything that a NoSQL database can do, but the reverse is not true. Right. The problem is that a relational database on the market is not a, quote, relational database per se. As an aside, I wonder if the NoSQL movement is a fate's revenge on Microsoft for foisting on us the mispronunciation of SQL Server. It should be SQL, not SQL. Out of spite, oh I will continue to God. say Azure instead of Microsoft's preferred Azure. You know, nitpick is right, man. Well, I mean, in the end, it's true. The Ted Cod built a mathematical model for relational data that he honestly didn't really believe that could be implemented, and he didn't work on the original incarnations of it. IBM drove all this research mm. and built some of the very first things out there uh, that became these things. And while it's true that putting order items into XML data is not a violation of first normal form. It is a violation of third normal form. And so it's also got a set of problems. If you actually want to find out how many of a given product you've sold, you got to thumb through a lot of XML and that, well, sucks. Now, as for the SQL thing, sir, you are completely flatly wrong. IBM originally invented the language called SQL, S-E-Q-U-E-L, which is pronounced SQL and then got in trouble with the Hawker Sidley organization who had trademarked the name. And so they removed all of the vowels, leaving themselves with SQL, then came up with the acronym Structured Query Language and continued to call it SQL because <laughs> that's what it's called. Don't! Oh, and well. so was it Microsoft's fault at all? That was IBM. Microsoft remains blameless. Remember, they got into SQL late by getting a special version of Sybase's SQL Server built for them and then eventually rolling their own. So call it Azure or Azure, whatever makes you happy. But either way, SQL's not their fault. I do buy into your basic idea that there's an awful lot we could do inside a SQL server to get the kind of performance we're getting from NoSQL, that we have some practices that make things harder. And lumping all NoSQL together as the one product is a mistake as well. There are plenty of capabilities in NoSQL that vary from product to product, and some of them are plenty strong. But... Uh, I think they're different things for different purposes. We've certainly abused relational databases over the years. The databases we have are the databases we have. And i you know, going to live with what I can actually work on, not what the theoretical, mathematical model of a technology is. Well, and that's, that's what you're getting to. It's sort of like the languages, and I don't mean computer languages. I mean languages spoken by people. They change, they morph because certain things become more tolerable and popular than other things. And ways of doing things morph and change according to what people want to do with them. So, Yeah. You know, relational databases actually started out much more like OLAP in the sense that they were about doing querying. 
That's why they had a great querying language around them. But it became easier to sell them based on transactional velocity. And so the product started focusing on stuff like TPCC numbers for getting maximum performance from it. And that's what people sold their products around, right? And it definitely morphed the product away from its original intent. Yeah, But that's not going to stop me from sending John a mug. No way. So, John, hey, thanks for your message. Other than the parts where you were wrong, great message. And uh, I'll ship a .NET Rocks mug off to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have nearly 400 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs, industry experts, and people that appear on this show. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and have a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access to their library. They offer a wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much everything Microsoft, including 10 courses on Windows, Azure, and more in the works. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let us introduce our guest, Richard Astbury helps software businesses around Europe migrate their applications to the cloud. He works with a wide variety of companies, ranging from the smallest startups to the largest software businesses in the world, and specializes in moving applications that were never designed to run in the cloud, utilizing the Windows Azure platform. Richard is a Microsoft MVP for Windows Azure and senior consultant at 210, that's T-W-O number 10, degrees, he is often found developing open source software in C-Sharp and Node.js and lives in rural Suffolk, UK with his wife and two children. Welcome, Richard. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thank you for being here. So you you like to do the hard stuff, which is taking all those non-cloud-friendly apps and actually moving them over. That's right, yes. Yeah, there's um, a, a lot of businesses out there who have applications they've spent years and years working on and there's no need to, to throw that out just because the cloud's come along you can still take that code um you know, whatever it may be and get that up into the cloud and run it in as your i gotta imagine that that uh, is a very popular service because that's probably the first thing people think of when they see the cloud is how do we get what we have running up there that's right yeah we we have a lot of people kind of form a strategy on, on how to do that so they might pick a, a part of their application um a small subset and think, well, we could take this and we could put this in the cloud and we might be able to run it cheaper than on-premises and that might open up a new market and we might be able to to make some additional revenue and reach people we, we couldn't reach before, perhaps uh, right. people who are, who are located in a different part of the world or uh, we've worked with one company who do uh, banking software uh, because they can run their, their software at a much uh, lower price in the cloud. They can now do kind of microfinance banking in, in South America. So it's really interesting the kind of business cases that, that the cloud can supply. Now, if I have an existing app running on existing infrastructure, like once you've paid for the hardware, it's kind of what's the cost of running it anymore? This, I'm working on this. Uh, I'm going to save money if I move to the cloud model. That's right. You're not going to get money back for your servers. Um, but if you're starting a new project or, or, or you want to scale uh, to, to, reach, to reach new customers, um, I don't think it makes any any sense anymore to go and buy hardware when you can right. go and rent it you know, by the hour. In, so in it's a, really got to be that tipping point. It's like we're about to go bigger, and you're probably going to get a quote from a vendor that says, "Hey, here's a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment we need to buy." 
That's a lot of Azure hours. Go bigger or just uh, replace what you've got. I mean, these machines don't run forever. You can sort That's of right. smell when it's time to, 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 to change them up. But it's not just the cost of the, the tin, is that there's a cost in maintaining and managing this infrastructure. Sure. It's a, a state of service you have in your data center. And really, uh, a lot of that, that work is, is quite menial, and you could move that over to a cloud and have, uh, as you're kind of doing that for you, and you know, release the people who are doing operating system patching and, and software updating uh, onto, onto more interesting things. Now, you're only going to be able to do that if you're not doing the whole infrastructure as a service virtual machine thing, right? Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of people um, initially think that the infrastructure as a service is the best place for their application um, because you can just fire up a, a virtual machine, put on your, your, your software components, and you're done. But uh, you kind of lose the bigger picture of the cloud, which is this um, huge horizontal scale that you're, you're, you have available to you. So you... Um, adopting the platform as a service approach, uh, whilst you know, is a little bit more difficult to start with, mm. uh, gives you a much better long-term uh, benefit because now you can just go to the Windows as your portal and flip a slider across the screen, and you're going from what well, two instances to a hundred instances. So, where do you start typically? Where's what's your approach? Where does where do you start, and how? What's the talk? Walk us through the process of uh, moving an app. So the the process really. Um, it starts with uh, well telling the customer what what Azure is, you know, what's in the box. Uh, these are the, the features of the platform. You might not use all of these on day one, but you know, next time you come to to reinvent a wheel, you know, there's a wheel there for you in Azure that you can use straight away. The next step is to then you know understand the customer's architecture and, and get in into that and understand the components that, that run their system. And then normally uh, I start by looking at the database. That's the real real heart of an application. Uh, and you, you can't really run the application without it, so it makes makes sense to to have that as the starting point. Uh, and then, you know, after you've you figured out what we're going to do with the database, and there are a few options there. I mean, you can uh, make use of the the database service, the Windows Azure SQL database, which uh, you just you know, go into the portal, ask for a, a database server, and then you know, you can start creating databases on that server. Uh, and the, the yeah, you know, the strategy is you know how how do you get your your database up into that that is your um, SQL database because there are a number of differences between SQL Server and the Windows Azure SQL database and uh, your your listener will be disappointed to hear that the XML support isn't available in the Windows Azure SQL database. We were uh, we were <laughs> lucky in that the uh, the migration wizard worked for us. Yeah, the, Pretty much the SQL database migration wizards. Yeah, it, it saves a lot of time. It, it analyzes your local database, uh, gives you a report to say, you know, these things aren't going to work, or you know, these bits are be okay. And then it'll it'll migrate your schema and your data up for you, and and you can do that in a matter of minutes. So it, it gets you uh, off the ground very quickly, and and I highly recommend it. Um, but there are other options available to you. you know, there's a a MySQL um, and a MongoDB service available in Azure, and you can always uh, sort of stand up a, a SQL server on a virtual machine if you really need to. But but the SQL database is definitely the, the place to try and get to. Yeah, it seems very hard to justify standing up SQL Server in Azure. Like that just sounds like I don't even think about the licensing problems around that. Mm. Much less, it's just like what it already exists. Yeah, you you can take your licensing with you, or you can you can pay extra for it, I, I believe. But mm -hmm. um, it it only makes sense if if you can't run if you can't use the SQL database service. I mean, if there's a feature you must have, like 
analysis services or distributed transactions or something like that, then then you've got no choice really. Right. Yeah, that's tough. So what are the what are the wonky parts usually involve? Um, you know, because most stuff is just going to work fine. But I can think of the the blob storage being a problem. Uh, you know, anytime you're writing to files or uploading content, that sort of has to be rewritten, huh? Yeah, people who take uh, dependencies on the file system often have a little bit of work to do, but that, that's that's fairly rare and, and normally fairly easy to fix uh, because. Um, as you were, you were mentioning earlier, the the Blob Storage API is quite straightforward to use. There's a really yeah. good SDK for a number of languages now, uh, so yeah, that, that's normally far, fairly easy to fix. Uh, some of the other difficult bits. Uh, let me have a think. Uh, they often tend to come around um, uh, situations where someone has a, a Windows service they want to run, for example, mm. but they can only have one instance of it. Now, really, in a in a cloud system, you want to have resilience because yeah, your hardware uh, is not as um, high spec as it might be on premises, and you sure. can't guarantee that something's going to stay up forever. So you, you want to have two two of everything. So how do you kind of have maintain that resilience, but also have just a single instance of a service? So you have to then look at, or well, how do I do locking or, or something like this to to manage concurrency there? Well, it's just some kind of failover solution. I mean, we were, I think we're getting to the brass tacks about migration, which is. The architecture matters. Mm, yeah, that's right. I mean, do, do you run into apps that are just Azure resistant? I've certainly run into apps which, um, for example, they, they've taken a dependency on the file system. You know, they're, they're writing out files, and that's just littered throughout their code. And so right. when you say, right, it's time to, to to change that, you know, if they'd been using um, inversion of control or dependency injection, uh, that, that would be a, a, you know, a few lines of code to change. What about something that uses audio? Like uh, there's no audio, well, I don't know if there's audio devices, but I know that in a virtual machine anyway, I can't add an audio device. And if I need to do anything that requires that, uh, you know, such as, uh, you know, dealing with an incoming stream of data from a device, that obviously isn't going to work. Yeah, if you're starting to expect uh, certain pieces of hardware to be available to you, then then you're going to be disappointed. You know, I, I have heard of people wandering along with a kind of USB dongle saying, you know, this needs to be plugged into the machine. Right. <laughs> that's, that's going to be a challenge. That's going to be a problem. This is going to be a problem. Yeah. You know, there are ways around these things. Uh, you, you can stand up uh, VPN connections and tunnel through firewalls to, to reach uh, hardware or infrastructure that, that you just simply can't move. Right. Uh, and that there's a few options around there. But yeah, that normally, uh, yeah, that, that kind of approach doesn't work. So with the the littered file writes and reads all over the code, that that tends to be the biggest challenge. Yeah, I'd say another one is um, licensing servers. Oh, yeah. So I hit customers who say, "Oh, I'm using this licensing server," and intentionally we've littered our code with calls out to it, and and they're very resistant to remove that because they don't want to have a stream a code stream which uh, is not dependent on the licensing server because that might get out and people will be able to use their software without. Sure. And we but, were just talking about the problem of uh, licensing APIs that phone home and you know put the some you know some sort of stuff about the machine that to identify the machine you know the MAC address or any of that kind of stuff out there and that's right. well you know machine is a a kind of a loose concept in the cloud yeah 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 so does it make sense to build hybrid solutions that have some pieces in the cloud and some pieces still on prem absolutely yeah and you can. Um, 
you can make a hybrid uh, solution between clouds or between um, Azure and and on-premises. Uh, you can also mix and match the components in Azure. So you, um, there's a few uh, offerings for uh, in the cloud for running your compute tasks. So you can choose websites, virtual machines, or cloud services. They each have their pros and cons, but you don't have to just pick one. You can pick all three and, and move your application between them or have different parts running on, on different kinds of uh, service. So... Um, I mean, Azure is really just a box of, of tools and services available to you, and you can take advantage of many of those completely um, with code that runs on-premises, like the blob storage, for example. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Yeah, I'm just thinking you through like what happens with authentication, with uh, performance, like when you're split across different systems like that. They're used to all being in a, in a box or at least in a rack, and now they're spread around the internet. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, fortunately, as yours on a pretty good piece of uh, dark fiber, I guess, and the. The connections in and out of it seem seem to be pretty good, mm-hmm. but yeah, if if you're on a on a on a more tenuous connection, um, you got to consider that in your architecture. You know. uh, so, for example, uh, one solution to that might be that you can use a data synchronization technology to keep your um, uh, Windows as your SQL database in sync between the different um, as your data centers or your on-premise SQL Server, mm-hmm. uh, and so that allows you to distribute your application. You know, geographically around the world, you know, to get nearer to your users and to have more resilience, uh, but it doesn't affect the performance. It just affects the, you know, the how um, latent the data might be to to travel around the globe. Sure. So Although I mean, that does latency can have an impact on performance as well. It's one of those secret performance killers that yeah. folks miss. You actually can move. I mean, I'm a big advocate of CDNs just because moving content closer to the user gives a faster reaction. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, but it, I mean, just still wrestling over the architectural elements of this, because some of this stuff's really challenging to deal with with an existing application. How much do we need to change? I mean, do you run into cases where I can take an existing app and pick it up and move it to the cloud without major revisions? Uh, a lot of the time, uh, we make absolutely no code changes whatsoever. Huh. A lot of people are surprised by that. And it's web-based apps. Yep. Dropping into web roles, the, the sort of pass offering of Azure. Yeah, yeah, they can be web roles. Uh, I mean, the only difference between a web role and a worker role is that a web role has IIS uh, enabled on it. Okay. Uh, so if your application uses IIS, use a web role. If not, use a worker. So 
Um, I mean, a lot of uh, the applications I've moved are, are Java applications. Uh, they don't use IIS. They use Tomcat or, or whatever. Oh, really? Uh, and they're, they're very, very straightforward to move. In fact, um, we, we can normally move a Java application faster than a .NET one. So you've taken Java applications that have client-side components and migrated them up to worker roles in Azure. So you actually push the Tomcat framework into the worker role? Yeah. So we, we've taken uh, JBoss or Tomcat, um, the, the server-side Java components, yep. to run a, a Java website uh, and, and yeah, put that into a worker role. That's a pretty big pile of awesome right there, yep. actually. That I did not expect that the really? whole that whole thinking of this would be a great platform to run uh, an, a multi tier or an end tier Java application. Yeah, well, anything that that'll run on sixty uh, four bit Windows will run in cloud services. Mm -hmm. Anything. Well, there, there's a few caveats, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> as long as they don't write to the file system or <laughs> dependencies on the registry. I mean, there's a few sneaky yeah. bits in there that can break code. Yeah. In some ways, because it's java and doesn't do anything with windows it'll actually run better than if it was a microsoft technology well, well java applications tend to to just um kind of access uh resources through the jvm uh, right and so they don't tend to take uh dependencies on the operating system they don't tend to work with the registry and right. things like that so much they're very much more sandboxed independent so yeah because they're, they're used to being agnostic to the operating system precisely yeah that's hilarious what if you uh, need to bootstrap an app? Can you do that? Yeah, so that, that's the, the strategy we use uh, for getting Java to run. So um, yeah, to install Java, all you do is, is you put a, a copy of, of Java and the, or the Java runtime environment on the machine, mm -hmm. set an environment variable, you know, X copy in the, the application and, and hit run. Uh, cool. So uh, the, to make that um, really easy we've we've developed some some tools or, and some projects out there on, on github to make that uh, really easy and seamless so, so such as what what is it called well, it's, it's, well there's a couple it's probably worth um yeah let's talk about doing them. a little bit of background uh, as to how this works because it's a neat trick that uh, probably people will be interested in even if they're not doing java and that is uh when you uh, build um, an application and deploy it to, to cloud services, which is the platform as a service offering in Azure, and it's been the kind of main feature since release. You um, you package up your application in a particular package format, and you can do that either within Visual Studio, or you, there's some tooling in Eclipse, or or you can just use the command line. And so you basically you know, uh, package up your application, and it's built and everything. And in that package, there's some instructions to tell us your, that you want to deploy to a worker role or a web role and how many instances you want and what kind of operating system they should be and everything it needs to deploy your application. So when it then opens up that package and, and installs your application on, on the servers for you, uh, it, it has a, a hook that you can take advantage of. So it uh, allows you in an XML file to express um, tasks that you'd like to run. And you can run them elevated or, or in a limited um, security context. And you can run them in the background. So you can say, you know, start this task up and forget about it. Or you can run them uh, and wait for them to complete. So this gives you the opportunity to go and um, configure the operating system, uh, pull down some dependencies you might have, mm. um, 
perhaps you want to install some complus or you want to set some environment variables or, or whatever you want to do. Sure. So if you've got, for example, a Windows service that you've spent the years developing, you don't want to turn it into a worker role. You can just put that in a blob in a zip file perhaps and have a task, pull that down, install the service and, and start it. Uh, so you don't have to make any changes to your code to get your thing running in the cloud. And does that happen automatically when you scale up to more uh, more VMs? That's right. Every, every uh, instance that you, you request you know, runs the same task when it starts. It gets the same package file deployed to it, yeah. and it'll do exactly the same thing. That's awesome. So you get complete repeatability. Every single server is the same. Yeah, that's great. And so, um, so the strategy with, with Java is you do that just this. You um, In those startup tasks, you pull down uh, the Java files you need, you unzip them, you put them in the right place, you run the batch files to start the things, and, and Java's running. But there's a bit of boilerplate code in doing that. I mean, you need to download the blob, unzip the blob, start a process, check that it's running, write the diagnostic stuff out. And uh, to make that easier, we've got a, a project called Azure Run Me, which is just a Visual Studio uh, kind of bootstrapping project. Uh, and you just supply some configuration to say, this is where my blob is. This is the process I'd like you to start when it's mm -hmm. unzipped, uh, and it does all that for you. So without you having to write any code, uh, you just pull in this Visual Studio project and set it up and, and go. That's awesome. Great idea. Yeah. So we, uh, a colleague of mine uh, wrote that a, a couple of years ago. That's out on, on GitHub uh, and has proved very, very popular. I mean, there's thousands of nodes and as you're um, running as you're running me now. So We'll add the yeah. link to the web page. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've, I've taken the idea uh, kind of another step forward uh, with my own project, which is called the Azure Plugin Library. So the idea here is um, that that packaging process I mentioned earlier, where you, which you can do from Visual Studio or from the command line, um, that actually has some extensibility built into it. So the way the Azure SDK works is that uh, features like a remote desktop or the diagnostics module or the Connect VPN, for example, are all enabled through a, a kind of plug-in mechanism. So there are some extra folders uh, under the SDK with, with some code and configuration in that describe how these extra features work. And then in your XML file, you um, you reference these these plugins and they get packaged up with your package. So, um, so that's a fantastic extensibility point. Yeah. You can create your own plugins to do whatever you want and then you just add, you reference them in your your XML file in your in your cloud project in Visual Studio, and this extra stuff gets then packaged in to your package for you. So I've created a library of these plugins uh, to make it you know, really simple to to get stuff running. So I've got plugins for for Java and for Chocolatey, the uh, NuGet based yep. installer, mm -hmm. and for Nginx and for Node.js and for you know, dozens of of things to make it really quick. Um, that's awesome. To install these extra pieces in, yeah. Richard, no, great, great job. Thank you. Great <laughs> idea. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Richard, you know what time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. It's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection from our friends at Telerik. This is everything they do in one box, about two grand worth of software. Everything. And our winner today is D Mandal. Ah, congratulations, D. Congratulations, D. That is all flat for you, sir. On its way to you. 
And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and you'll be a member of the .net Rocks fan club, and you could win stuff, too. Every show, we give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection or something else, or maybe even in addition to mm-hmm. something else. And every December, we're giving away $5,000 worth of technology handpicked by myself and Richard the Toy Boy. And uh, last year, we gave away a big honking computer to uh, a lucky winner in Canada. And we'd like to ask our guests, Richard, if mm-hmm. you would, uh, if you had $5,000 to spend or somebody was going to spend five grand on you for toys, for gadgets, what would you get? You know, I, I listen to your show uh, quite frequently and I'm often driving and I'm thinking to myself, I have no idea what I, don't, what I would get. But <laughs> You know, most so of I, the cloud guys say that because they're all like in the virtual yeah. world, right? They, they don't but think in a, terms of hard stuff. That's right. There's a, there's a few things that have got my attention though. So in the Node.js world, I don't know if you've been following them, but they've had quite a lot of success in getting um, those uh, those little copters quadcopters oh, yes. uh, running and running node on them and oh, then yeah. programming them so they've got you know flying web servers uh, around and using kind of hive technology to control lots of copters and they all talk to each other and so that crazy would be stuff. the ultimate practical joke to get an army of uh, quadcopters <laughs> that are under remote control just to hover at uh, your boss's window yeah you know? precisely yeah a cloud of, of quadcopters we could call it the <laughs> skynet kit that's right <laughs> So as, as many of those as, as $5,000 would buy. That's a lot. <laughs> It'd be quite a few, yeah. Nothing like having 20 of them running around. <laughs> Brilliant. Flying in formation. Yep. Oh, man. All right. So once you have your app up in the cloud, the, the app that was never designed to be up in the cloud, and you finally got it all working, now what does tweaking and optimizing usually look like? Where do you start with that? Yeah, so there's, there's a few places you can go. I mean, um, whenever you do anything in the cloud, you kind of incur cost. So that Microsoft are metering all of your activity. So a lot of the time, there, there's discussion around, okay, you know, how, we've got this thing up and running. How do we kind of optimize it for, for cost to, to bring the bill down? And so there's, there's a few things you can do there to, to get the cost down. I think one of the, the best uh, and most interesting things is trying to consolidate down the roles you have. So when you go to Visual Studio and you say, I want to make a web role and a worker role, yeah, you probably, you know, you might create a web role for your web application and you might make a second web role for your API and then you might make a third web role, uh, sorry, uh, then you might make a worker role for your background service or something like that. Does, does that sound familiar, the kind yeah. of thing, kind of approach? Oh, yeah. And that's the that's the kind of approach that the Visual Studio kind of lends to, kind of pushes you down. Um, but if you do that, you end up with three different roles. So to get resilience, you need to have two instances of each of those roles. So your kind of minimum deployment is six machines, which is that's quite a lot of infrastructure for perhaps just one customer. So um, consolidating that stuff down to a single role would mean that your minimum deployment would just be uh, two machines. Uh, and you have you know, a single role that can do anything. And that then gives you the kind of horizontal scale. So when you start to get busy, you just say, I'll have some more of those. And it doesn't really matter what component on the box got, got busy. You just you just need more boxes to to, uh, to have more capacity. 
So it makes your scaling easier because you only have one kind of dial to turn then rather than three different dials and trying to figure out where where the demand is on the system and how you increase more than one and that lets more traffic through to the second tier and you've got to increase that and, and so on and so forth. So yeah. that, that's one thing I recommend. And and doing this consolidation isn't isn't that straightforward. You, you know, it might help to, to use some of the techniques we've talked about already. Uh, there's some more hacking around you can do in the XML files in Visual Studio to to get more than one site running on a on a machine, things like that. But it, it's worth exploring those options. So, what's your logging strategy? We we know that uh, some people use third party software as a service options for for handling logs and uh, getting insight into you, you know how much it's being used and all that. What's your what's your strategy? Yeah, there's um. One of the one of the plugins in the Azure SDK is a diagnostics one. That's, that's part of the, the Microsoft Azure SDK, and what uh, and that's pretty straightforward to use. You just uh, drop in an XML file into your project. Uh, you just call it diagnostics.wadcfg, uh, and that's an XML file that contains some configuration to say these are the performance counters I'm interested in. Uh, these uh, are the you know, this is the trace output I want. You know, how often do you want the counter sampled and shipped? And it'll ship all of that data into table storage for you. Uh, and then you can then connect a third party tool like um, Redgate uh, Diagnostics Manager Two, whatever it is. Uh, and then you can then view the performance of each of your instances in your in your Azure estate and and kind of manage them and, and see how much load they're under. Um, so that, that's interesting. It's one of the things that's changed in Azure. Azure is a constantly changing, ever-growing, uh, huge box of stuff. And it used to be that you had to programmatically set up diagnostics. And if you go and uh, Google uh, that kind of stuff, it'll, it'll show you the code to do that. But in fact, that, well, that's all been taken away for you and, and put into this module. Uh, and, and so that's definitely worth looking at and, and using. Okay. Uh, what else? Queuing? Well, uh, a lot of people start off by just moving their application into the into the cloud, into Azure, uh, and that's fine. It runs, um, and and that's great. But uh, you can take advantage of, of extra features within Azure, and you know, the storage is an obvious one. You're starting to store your files in blob storage, but also using um, like the queuing technology in storage as well to try and distribute work between uh, the instances you've got. Also, that the Fabric, which is a kind of operating system which sits on top of Azure and manages all of your servers for you, there's some hooks that, that you can use uh, and events that fire um, to allow the Fabric to communicate with your application. And that's a, a kind of secondary thing that we look at as well. So you can get a, an, an event to say, um, you're about to be switched off or you know, you're about to be started up, you know, prepare yourself. Uh, and so the tighter integration you get to that fabric, the, the kind of better your application can respond to changes in the infrastructure. So, so this is sort of the next evolutionary stage of your application is you start being committed to the Azure environment and taking advantage of the stuff that's there. Absolutely right, yeah, yeah. So you can do some smart stuff. So when your um, instance starts up and your code is copied onto the onto the Azure machine, you could have the opportunity to, to run some code. Uh, so you could run your unit tests then, or a subset of them, to say, you know, does this application look healthy? Is the box performing well? If not, then throw an exception, and that'll recycle you, and you'll get another shot. 
So it's a good way just to check that things have been deployed um, in the way you expect. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of active reports. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active reports from Component One. Smarter components for smarter developers. Uh, I got to think that we get back to that original architecture, you know, the, the chattiness of an application or the amount of store space stuff that it stores and so forth, just not a big deal when you own the hardware, but as soon as you're paying by the byte for everything, all of that now has got a cost associated with it. That's right. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting how the costs work out. If you're thinking of, um, building something or moving something to Azure, have a good play with the, the cost calculator on the Azure website. It's really good. You just mm -hmm. um, move some sliders across the screen to say, this is how many servers I think I'll be using. This is the size of my database. This is how much data I want to store. And it'll give you um, some numbers. But if you just play around with those dials, you get a feel for how much things cost. And it's, it's quite surprising. So, for example, storage is dirt cheap. Right. You, know, you don't ever need to delete anything. It's so cheap. Right. Um, but, and, but the biggest cost is compute. So what can you do to move things off your compute load and onto the storage load. So, for example, mm. you mentioned the CDN earlier that you know, it's a fantastic strategy. You don't serve static content with your, with your compute nodes because you're paying for CPU cycles to serve static stuff that you could just right. move into blob storage mm. uh, front with a CDN and um, pay a lot less to, to serve to your, your users and, and have the content a lot nearer to them. So are you yeah. are you so, saying use a CDN or don't? I didn't get absolutely. Quite. Yeah, use yeah. the CDN. Yeah, yeah, it's a great way of of, of saving money and to to remove load from your your from web browser storage. Work. Yeah, so we get this idea that if you compute the same thing twice, you're wasting money. Right, compute it once and store it, and then fetch it after that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which can lead to its own kinds of bottlenecks. But, you, you know, this is the whole caching strategy as a whole. Sometimes you're going to serve stuff that's wrong. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you don't don't optimize prematurely. That's the general advice, isn't it? Yeah. Right. But I, what I also appreciate is that if, you know, if you're careful about this, you should be able to figure out exactly how much that features can save you. That's right. Yeah. The actual cost yep. of, you know, we're, we, yes, it's always right, but we always are computing it and it's costing us X many dollars a month. If I take the, if we come up with a system that deals with occasionally being wrong, I could save this much money. That's right. But of course, um, Azure and, and all these clouds are elastic, so you can go up and down. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people think, you know, auto scaling is what they need uh, for their, for their estate in Azure. But in fact, um, most load is, is predictable and time-based. So mm -hmm. you know that between 9 and 5, people are going to be using your application. And during the night, no one's going to be using it. So you, you, know, you can um, stand up extra instances in advance to, to take care of that load and then scale back down in the night. I guess it and depends on how international your app is, too, because it's always daytime somewhere. That's right. Yeah, that's true. So we were just but, talking yeah. to Tiago Silva and Jeff Hewitt about... Uh, about Azure and auto scaling, uh, seems like there there there's a patterns and practices uh, a block for doing that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, there's uh, there's a ton of stuff out there to do auto scaling. Um, there is a, uh, a a pretty comprehensive um, uh, sample out there. Uh, I, I personally find that that's there's too much in there and it's too complicated. So I, yeah. I've got a really really simple thing called Azure Scale Me, which just looks at the performance counters, makes a simple decision, and scales up and down. And most people, you know, kind of take that and then customize it a bit for what they want to do. Uh, you know, there's another side of this, which is what's the cost of simply standing up extra instances that aren't being used? Or I mean, the actual computing is what costs the money, right? Yeah, you you pay for um, for virtual machines that you've you've reserved. They don't even need to be running for you to, for you to actually have to pay for them. But it's right. not that much, is it? It's twelve cents a core per hour, yeah. rounded up to the nearest hour. Yeah. yeah, but it goes up when those cores are working hard, right? Uh, the, the cost is is um, a flat hourly unit. So if your CPU is idle for an hour, you're still paying the twelve cents. The same rate. So yeah. what's the most expensive part here? It's normally the compute, right? Yeah. So the twelve cents per CPU per hour. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Whether you're using it or not, Do the, does it the not. actual bytes being moved, the, the the in and out matter? Does that come up to a significant number? Yeah, you're charged for egress, so data going out of the data center. There's no charge for data going in. Okay. Um, but the the those charges are, are negligible. They're, they're just change on the bill. Right. It's it's compute, and then probably um, the relational database. The SQL database is the second most expensive item, depending okay. on how big, how much data you got, or how many nodes you've got. Sure, but um, that's generally what, what seems to come out in the wash. Compute time is expensive part. Yeah, which gives people a good focus on on where to optimize and how to how do they get the most out of the compute nodes they're standing up. So, how do you utilize CDNs? Are you t- specifically just websites, or are there other ways to use them? Um. Yeah, I think web, you know, static web content is probably the best best thing for the Azure CDN. I mean, it, it's fair to say that the, the CDN in Azure is extremely simple to use. You just go into the, in fact, it's, that's a feature still in the old portal. That's Silverlight. You just tick it and say, yeah, I want a CDN node. An hour later, your CDN is running and it's fronting your blob store. So anything you put in as a blob comes out of the CDN node. And there's 24 CDN nodes globally. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a good chance that you've got a user near one. Uh, but it, it's not a terribly sophisticated CDN. So right. uh, you can't um, go and programmatically expire content. Uh, you can't uh, secure it. Uh, and yeah, if you can go and compare it to things like Akamai, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, it's like a kid's toy. But for most people, if they all they want to do is um, you know, serve some static web content like JavaScript, CSS, images, videos... It's absolutely perfect. Think it'd be uh, strong enough for us, for .NET Rocks? I, th- I think it'll be strong enough for you, yeah. Yeah. You're not using it already? Well, no, we're using S3. Okay. And uh, we're pushing anywhere between 10 and 12 terabytes uh, per month. Yeah, I don't, I don't see a challenge there. And that's the real thing here is the CDNs that are storing 20K images out at the edge, and then there's CDNs that are storing 60 megabyte audio files at the edge mm. yeah I, I haven't uh, stress tested at, at those kind of uh, levels but what, what's interesting is is when you compare um amazon's offering so you mentioned s3 mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. with azure um for for compute and for other services the prices are absolute parity there's no difference between them yeah um 
but when you come to look at the storage costs uh, for large volumes of, of storage, um, Azure is way cheaper. Hmm. Well, hey. so that you might get some some savings there already. I don't know how many uh, terabytes of, of content you've got. Lots. You, lots. Yeah. <laughs> you might you might want to have a look at the calculator and see what it would cost yeah. to serve out of Azure because you might you might realize some savings there. Sure. Yeah, and, and then again, the main thing you're paying for is egress, is sending those bytes out. But the closer you can send those bytes out from the user, the better experience they're going to have. That's yeah, right. yeah. Our, our websites run in Azure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this begs the question, if I'm trying to get to Azure, is it worth just going to the VM approach for, at first just to get everything up there and then gradually break things into these more pass-style roles? That's definitely one strategy, but it depends what you've got. So... um uh, with a VM, it, it's a pretty blank slate. So you, you know, you'd need to go and configure IIS and set up your ASP.NET website and everything like that if, if you're yep. doing ASP.NET. Whereas, in fact, it might be quicker to get started with cloud services because they've already got IIS set up for you. You just um, you, you open your solution, you add a cloud project after installing the, the Azure SDK, and then you pick the, the web application you want to deploy, uh, and you go for a wizard, and, and that's it. Right. Assuming there's there's no problems, and yeah, the, it, it, that's one of those things that's going to either work in a couple of hours or it's going to be days. That's right, and that's normally um, dependency tracking. So um, your application may use something that's installed in the global assembly cache, or some take some dependency of a .NET assembly that that's not copied locally, or something like that. So when the application gets deployed to Azure, um, the application's uh, copied onto the box. Um, it fires up the process, and then your application explodes because it's missing something. Yes, uh, and, the classic and object not found error. Yeah, that's uh, right. And, and there's sorry. no way for you to get that that information back because your your application hasn't started yet, so you can't get any any data out of it. You can't get any logging or tracing. Right. So um, uh, as you're just cycles you around, it says I'm restarting you, I'm restarting you, I'm restarting you, and it's very frustrating, and that's when you wish you'd bought uh, Visual Studio Ultimate Edition because then you get IntelliTrace and you can get some right. some tracing information out of it. So normally, you, I just go to every every reference in the project and just copy them all locally to make sure everything's there, and uh, and then you're normally up and running. But so, how how was moving your website? Was that relatively straightforward? Yeah, no, it was fairly. It was very straightforward. Like I said, the the database moved over from our local SQL Server to uh, SQL Azure, and uh, the the web stuff was pretty trivial too. I mean, it's just a couple of pages, right? It's not a whole yeah. lot. It's very popular, but it's just not a whole lot. Yeah, we find a lot of software businesses have got some pretty got some pretty weird things going on. So they got they got the, a web application and they got a an API, and then they've got some Windows services, and then they've got some other bits and pieces. So it's never the trivial case where it'll just run on a website. It's right. always a bit more messing around. Yeah, but always. That's what pays the bills. Sure does. So what's the biggest challenge, uh, the most challenging app you've ever had to move? So there's a couple of uh, interesting stories of, of, uh, of things I've moved. So first of all, there's an application uh, that that's... Uh, by a very large uh, software vendor in the UK. And it was like a, a history of web development. So it had some uh, ISAPI in there, it had some classic ASP, and it had some some Java as well. Uh, so that was uh, that's quite a lot of scripting to, to get all that set up, to configure RIS, to handle this ISAPI DLL, you know, to enable 
ASP and everything else, and then to do all the Java stuff. So that that took a couple of days. Yeah, that, that was fun. Uh, another another one uh, in Paris where uh, uh, a couple of developers uh, came along to a workshop we were running, and um, uh, for the for the lead developer, it was the, her first time ever using Windows. So we had to show her how the start button worked and, and ah. how to actually launch a, a program and uh, yeah, yeah, how, what the basics of the operating system were. And, of course, her application was completely Java and had all kinds of weird and wonderful things uh, that, that it depended on. So right. that, that, was quite, that was quite interesting. Nice. Yeah. We've got that working. <laughs> of course. So what's, uh, what's next on the horizon for you? Uh, for me? Mm-hmm. Uh, a bit more of this. Um, let me think. What's next? I'm going to Dublin next week to help uh, help someone design a strategy for pulling together all of their lots and lots of products that they've acquired over the years and, and form a strategy for getting that onto the cloud. Oh wow! Uh, don't, think I, don't think I can talk too much about that for now, but that's a pretty big project. Awesome. Um, and you'll be in Dublin, so you know. Yeah, yeah. I know Temple Bar. Yeah, yeah. There good. you go. Got um. Uh, the MVP Summit. Looking forward to that. Yeah. I don't know if you guys are attending. We are. We'll be there. Hey. Maybe we'll see you up. there. Hope so. Uh, and a couple of conferences, hopefully. So, bits and pieces. Fabulous. Well, we'll catch up with you at the summit for sure. And uh, hey, thanks for sharing this hour with us. It's been great. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's great. All right, Richard. We'll talk to you later. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.